0: Most of the best influence in life, most of the lessons that you get are caught, not taught. And so if you're just teaching things all the time and you don't embody it, your level of influence and the change you can make is very small. But if people can watch you and hear you, then they're catching things from you. It's caught.
1: Join me as I make friends with world-class athletes like Shaquille O'Neal, entertainers like Rob Dierdeck, authors like Dr. Nicole LaPera, former presidents like Vicente Fox, or even the occasional FBI hostage negotiator, billionaire real estate mogul, or polarizing political figure. So if you want to make more friends that help you become a better version of yourself, then subscribe to the show and keep on listening because this is Travis Makes Friends.
2: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the show. My name is Eric. I'm Travis's producer. And on today's episode, we're sharing an interview with Ed Milet. Now, this episode originally dropped about a year ago on a different podcast, but the content was so good. I wanted to make sure this conversation made it over to this audience. Ed Milet is, of course, a best selling author and leadership expert who has inspired millions of people around the world to achieve their goals. And on this episode, he talks about his book, The Power of One More, and how that was a way of overcoming his own fears and bolstered his confidence to be an even more impactful leader in the world. They talk so much about so many helpful topics, including parenting, how to change the generational lifestyles that have happened within your family. Uh, there is just so much value packed in this episode. I've listened to this interview a few times now, and I get something out of it every single time. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode with Travis Chappell. And Ed Milette. What is going on, everybody? Today on the show, I
1: have the absolute pleasure of bringing on somebody that I have looked up to for a really long time, Mr. Ed Milette. Ed is an entrepreneur, speaker, best selling author, father, husband, and so much more. But guys, if I really had to boil it down to a couple of things from the small amounts of time that I've been able to spend with him over the years, I would say that he is an outstanding sales leader and a prodigious people builder. And that's really what he does. And he does it just about better than anybody that I've ever met before. Jim Rohn always talked about how building people's like herding cats. And if you can master that skill set, then you'll earn paychecks that you can't even imagine. And Ed is the embodiment of that statement. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ed Milet to the show. What's going on? Good to be with you. I love that word, prodigious.
0: I have never used it before, but it's a powerful word. I'm gonna steal it from Prodigious it. level.
1: I I thought about using the word expert, but I felt yeah. like expert didn't quite didn't yeah. quite put it out as much as I really wanted to emphasize. I'll take
0: it. I'll take it prodigious what it means. So cool. That word hits prodigious.
1: I like yes, it. sir. Yes, <laughs> sir. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show, and I want to get this. I want to get this piece out of the way because I know that this is like the main reason that you're doing a bunch of these right now, which yeah. is. You wrote a new book, The Power of One More. And correct me if I'm wrong, but is this is your first like more kind of traditionally published book. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it's crazy. It's right now on Amazon. And so it's number one. I just looked this morning. It's so cool, brother. It goes uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Think and Grow Rich, and then my book. So you're talking about really good company. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's called
1: The Power of One More. Yeah, it's I was going to say, press the pause button. Go do that right now before we get into it. If you're not quite convinced, you will definitely be convinced by the end of this interview. So do it anyway. Do it right now. So The power of one more. And we're going to talk about a lot of these principles that have really helped Ed build his life out from there. First question I got for you, man, you do so much and you have so much. You, you're already hundreds of millions of dollars that you've earned in revenue and added to your net worth over time. Your, your husband, your dad, you do a lot of things with your kids and you get to be really involved in, in your family life. Why write a book? Like you don't you don't have to do it. You could be doing so many other things with your time. Why did you take time to do it and why now?
0: Frankly, there are days I wonder. But the truth is it's my home, brother. I love helping people and I sort of made this contract with myself that ended up being something I prayed about a lot that if I could learn all the keys to winning, cause I used to see people win and they couldn't explain to me what they did. And it mm. bothered me. Like, why can't no one documents when they win? They just kind of get good at something. So I always kind of committed to myself. If I could figure this stuff out, success and happiness, to some extent, we all have areas to grow that I would teach it. And then when I started to teach it, I found out I love doing that more than I like golfing. I do. I like doing that more than I like, I'm looking at the Pacific ocean right now outside my window. I'm not on that beach as much as you would think, because I actually love doing this. And I think I don't, I'm not good at a lot of things, but one of the things that God gifted me with is the ability to teach these principles and hopefully to inspire people to do it. And so I feel like I had to. The other piece of it was I'm fi- I, my dad died last year, and there's a lot about my dad in the book. And when my dad died, it made me think I'm going to die someday. And what do I want my kids and grandkids and great-grandchildren to know about life that maybe I didn't tell them, or maybe I won't be here to tell them? I'm going to put this in a book, so that they know how to be successful and happy based on my point of view and my strategies. And so that's the big overriding reason why I did it.
1: It's remarkable, isn't it? How many people are really, really good at something, but when you ask them questions about how they got good at it, or when you try to reverse engineer how they ended up where they are, they they can't quite articulate it. And I'm Wasn't curious it blow your about mind? it. It's, it's one of the things on yeah, my crazy. show
0: when I'll have some of the top athletes on or people are entertainers sometimes. And I'll be like, they just do things unconsciously, very competently and yeah. unconscious. I want to be consciously competent too, so that I can transfer the skill, so that I can teach people, so that I can, I don't want to be the king. I want to be the king maker, mm. the queen maker. And so oh. I want to be able to consciously tell you. And like the, the other thing in the book is like, my favorite books right here, other than the Bible. The Bible's my favorite book. The second favorite book is Think and Grow Rich. There's this original version. I love the book. But the truth is, you don't just think and get rich. You have to think and act. And so there's a lot of books on thinking. Then there's a lot of books on like actions you should take. But no one's ever taken the thought you need to have and the action you need to take and do, how, tell you how to do it simultaneously with congruency. Mm-hmm. That's what produces the result. So, like, you and I know people who act really well, but can't tell you the thoughts they have. That's what we're talking about. I know a bunch of other people have a bunch of thoughts, but can't do the actions and execute. So in the book, I mirror the thought and the action. I don't think that's ever been taught before. And so that's what's sort of unique about my strategies is there's a thought process and an action you do together that produces the result.
1: Yeah, there's probably not many more people that are uniquely qualified to put this kind of a book together as well. That's why I asked the question, because I love seeing people like you who do not need to like make money from a book, or you don't need to use this to sell a coaching program. You, right. Like you're already, you're already got everything you need. Thanks. And so I, I think a lot of times when people get into that position, they're almost doing the world a disservice by not sharing something because there's so many other people, especially now, <laughs> and, and there's so much noise. Maybe you can talk into this yeah. from people who've never done anything except for try to teach people how to do s- stuff. You know what I mean? It's it's a it remarkable always, time to be alive. <laughs> it is a
0: remarkable time. And I have to tell you that always tread lightly on that because I think everyone can help people, right? Everyone's got something to contribute and give. But man, are we in a world full of people now that are experts on things they are not experts at? Right. And it is very rare that someone who is great at something is willing to teach you and share with you, especially for free or in a large yeah. scale. And so it is. it does surprise me, even on social or podcasts or Coaching programs. I'm like, what made you think that person could tell you how to get wealthy or build a company? And they never built one. It's right. almost like going to the gym. If I'm going to get a trainer at the gym, by and large, I want that person to be fit.
1: They're going to look better than me, that's for sure. Right, well, <laughs> I think you look
0: pretty good, brother. But, but you know what I mean. Like, there's four types of people. There's completely unmotivated. That's the majority of people. I talk about this in the book. Then there's motivated people. They're wonderful. We all love motivated people. But they're driven by motives. I'm going to do this to get this car. I'll do this to get this relation. I'll do this to get this money. They're moved by their motives, which is a whole lot better than not being moved. The third level, which is very, very, very rare, is inspirational people. The, the root of inspiration is to be in spirit. They move you emotionally. You feel something when they communicate with you, when they interact with you. There's just a feeling. You go, I really like them. or I, They move me. I'm inspired by them. The fourth is the most rare. rare. That's aspirational people. These are people you actually aspire to be like them, to do what they've done. And so, what you're really saying is there's a lot of motivators out there, right? There's a few that are inspiring, there's very few that are aspiring, that are aspirational, meaning if I do what they did, I'll get what they have. Yeah. And I kind of, I'd like to think that I'm in the former, the latter category of aspirational most of the time, although. I must tell you, I don't have all the answers. And the older I get, I just got asked this the other day by a dear friend. He's like, man, the older you get, don't you realize how, I said, man, what I realize is how little I still know. Mm -hmm. The older I get, I realize I don't know that much. But, (laughs) But what I do know, I put in the book. And that's why I did it.
1: Can you talk into how to almost maybe ride the line between confidence and arrogance or delusion? The point that I'm getting at here is that I think this is what causes a lot of people that maybe shouldn't be yet selling their advice to start doing that is that they they get taught all these things about you should think positively about yourself and you should th- you should hold yourself in high regard and you should have all these thoughts about yourself. And then they almost buy into a version of themselves that does not yet exist. And then that's the version that they sell to other people not having earned the right to be able to do it yet. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but makes, but still- I, obviously confidence is crucial to being able to to achieve anything. I know you talk a lot about confidence and a lot of things that I've learned about confidence and building it have come directly from you. So I'm curious to hear, h- how do you build confidence, but not like overstep into this like world that doesn't even exist because you're almost delusionable about, delusional about how awesome you are. Yeah,
0: If I had to have you air, I'd rather you air on being more confident than not confident, right? However- sure. My favorite people toe this line, there's a nuance, and it's very, very difficult to do. And you have to be on guard about it all the time in your life. And that is, I love people that nuance tremendous self-confidence with humility. So I know a bunch of people with a lot of confidence that don't have the humility. They end up burning out. They end up Mm -hmm. making mistakes. Their ego takes over. They spend the money they make. They think they've made it. They slow down their effort, and they're just uncomfortable to be around, right? Then I know a bunch of people with a bunch of humility that have no confidence, and you're constantly having to carry them in your life. They're a pain in the neck. They drain you. So the people I try to be around and what I try to be like is to have that self-confidence with humility because humility keeps you curious, keeps you humble, wants you to learn, wants you to expand, wants you to explore. You've never Mm -hmm. really made it yet. It even makes me uncomfortable to some extent if I'm being candid as you and I have been talking, as if I have all the answers or I have my act completely together because I know even yesterday, I had kind of a down day yesterday, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm a human going through life. But having said that, to your point, most of the best influence in life, most of the lessons that you get are caught, not taught. And so if you're just teaching things all the time and you don't embody it, your level of influence and the change you can make is very small. But if people can watch you and hear you, Then they're catching things from you. It's caught. Like with my kids, I can tell them, be a good person, read your scripture. But they catch most of it by watching me. Do do I do that? Right? It's caught, not taught. So that's why you have to do things in order to be great at teaching them because otherwise you're just teaching and people aren't catching.
1: You no, know, you brought up you brought up parenting and a lot and a lot of things have changed since the last time you and I spoke on a podcast. I think I that know. was I mean 2017, I, I know right where I was 2018? sitting where
0: you interviewed me, because I remember telling you, bro, you're really good at this. Do you remember that?
1: I do remember that. Yeah. Yes. And you are. Sure. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's been a crazy, crazy journey and a lot's happened since then. And frankly, you should not have said yes to an interview with me at the time, but I was <laughs> right. very grateful that you did. <laughs> and now you fast forward and we we have a seven-figure software startup that we raise capital for and we have millions of downloads on the show and talk to Shaq and Rob Deerdeck and all these other people on the show and things like that. But the one biggest change has been that I now have two kids and my son is going to be three years old next month and my daughter is about 18 months. And so anytime I'm able to sit down with somebody and ask selfish questions about parenting, so I I love to take advantage of that. So if we can just kind of put a pin in the conversation about the book and things like that, Mm. I'm really curious about like kind of some of the the things that you've taken away as a parent. You already just kind of alluded to one, but I I would like to start that with a, a story that I heard you tell on somebody else's show was about your your daughter was at school or something when she was younger and somebody said like, oh, you, you're rich or your parents are rich or something. And she, and she came and asked you the question. So I want you to tell that story and then tell us the answer that you gave to her and why that's something that's important to you.
0: So, and again, I'm not, i have done promoting the book, but I must tell you, I have a lot of parenting stuff in the book. And, oh, great. Uh, help you be a better mother, a better father. And so there's sports analogies and all this other stuff too, but there's a lot of parenting in there. So my daughter comes home from school, or she gets in the car, I'm picking her up for school. And I'm always worried. Like when you do raise your kids, like I can tell when I meet somebody who was raised with money. Most of the time, mm. especially men, not all the time, but most of the time. Like people always ask me, well, "How do you know?" And there's just a softness. There's a lack of an edge there because mm. they didn't have to scrape and claw and battle for things. And I used to worry that my son or my daughter would possess that and that they'd lose that thing in life you got to have which is this this mental toughness fortitude resiliency relentlessness to win. So my daughter comes back from gets out of class and she gets in the car and she looks up at me Precious Bella and she goes, "Daddy, are we rich?" I said, "What?" She goes, "Everyone at school told me we're rich." And I said, "Well, I don't know. How much money you got?" She <laughs> goes, "I got like $20." I think she said I got $14. And I go, "Well, I know for sure you're not rich." That's not rich. I said, I don't know whether daddy is or not, but I definitely know you're not rich, honey. Yeah. And I made that point because I wanted to earn things. And you flash forward, I have a story in the book where I actually talk about my daughter wanted a car. I could buy her any car she wants. She had to buy her own car. So she had to go get a job. She goes to get a job. And one of the principles in the book is one more try. My kids have been raised watching me make one more try, one more rep, one more phone call, one more text, tell her I love her one more time. It's all stuff in the book. So she goes to get this job. I write about it in the book. She goes down to, it's a pizzeria and it's a well-known one. And they're about to hire and they go, you are 18, right? And she says, no, 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 I'm 17. And she loses the job. So she calls me, daddy, can you come pick me up? They won't hire me because of alcohol there. And I said, okay. And then about 10 minutes later, she goes, hang on, don't pick me up yet. What she did is she remembered one more try. She walked across the street to a bakery and went in and said, hi, I'm looking for a job. And she ended up getting hired across the street at the bakery. It was one of the most proud moments of my life because she embodied one more try. Long story short, she ended up buying her own. It's a beat up used six-year-old Jeep, her own car with that money. And all of that, Travis, goes all the way back to that question she asked me in my car back in fourth grade. Are we rich? No, you're not rich. And then going from there, those are the type of things I try to do with my kids.
1: Yeah, and how crucial to pre draw on that principle that you mentioned just a second ago as well, you didn't just tell your kids that you should always take one more try or you should always try one more rep or push one more time or ask once more like you didn't just tell them that. Yeah. they experienced that. They saw you from the position of when they were first born, which is nowhere near as much wealth as you've built now, yeah. and then saw this principle flush itself up flush itself out over time. And saw what that did to the results that you were able to to achieve. And I think I think that's I think that's one thing that like I really try to do as a parent. Obviously, I'm very brand new at, at being a parent, but yeah, that's the one thing I really, really like think is is paramount, especially when it comes to my relationship with my kids, is that I just never want to be the do as I say, not as I do guy. That that's detrimental. First
0: off, I knew when I met you, I know guys that are gonna be great dads. You are, because there's a gentleness and a kindness to you, particularly with your daughter that will be beautiful. But one of the things that everyone should be cognizant of and by the way I make a lot of mistakes as a dad. I could give you a list of times I'm like, "Why did I do that?" But having said that's part of being a parent. But I didn't want to rob my kids from the things my parents gave me. My parents gave me a bunch of stuff they shouldn't have, but one of the things they did give me was I had to scrape and claw and fight and work hard and battle and overcome pain. And so when well, my kids would have issues at school with grades or teachers, I didn't intervene. I made them work it out. I made them go I let them have some rejection. uh, I'm just a big believer in giving them the life experience because when you get back out into the world, the world's tough. There's lots of forms of child abuse, different levels. And you know that my dad was an alcoholic and I worked in an orphanage where my kids were truly abused, molested by family. So there are degrees of this and no one's more familiar with that than I am. But all the way down to not loving or hugging your children is a form of, it's a form of abuse. And there's another one that most parents are unaware of and that is parents who don't chase their own dreams. You are robbing your children from seeing what that looks like. You're robbing your children from seeing you aspire and stretch and grow. It's the most insidious form of child neglect is a parent who does not chase their own dreams, who plays life small, who installs software programming in their children of small thinking and small life and small expansion, small risk, small growth. That's a form of neglect of your children if you're not doing that. So hopefully maybe for the first time as a parent, you now feel obligated, which is okay, to chase your dream, to grow, to expand. Because if you don't, you're neglecting your children because they're watching that software and they're catching it. And mm-hmm. their self-esteem is affected by your lack of happiness and your lack of success more than any other thing in their life.
1: You can't let your will to win be for sale in that regard. That's right. As as a parent, because then your your kid is going to look at that example that you said. And it doesn't matter what you say anymore at that point. That's the part that gets me. It's like a lot of parents are kind of, are doing their best in terms of trying to instill the beliefs and saying like, you can do it. You can do anything and you can accomplish whatever you put your mind to. And it's like, as soon as I had my son, it just made me realize like, I never wanted to get to the point where I was telling my son that and he would look me dead in the eye and go, well, why didn't you? You got it. And it was like, ooh. And uh,
0: And he gets to an age, Travis. We all did where we figure out who our parents actually are, mm-hmm. right? When we're little, they're our hero. They're our Super world. Hero, but, yeah, yeah. But there becomes an age where you go, that's my dad, that's my mom. And you yeah. figure out who they are in the world. I never wanted my kids to figure out their dad was average. Their dad mm-hmm. was a fraud. Their dad was a talker. Their dad was just another dude. Because if you think your dad's another dude or your mom's just another person, you come from that. And so of course it affects your self-esteem. Of course it affects your belief. It's why so many people generationally struggle because mm-hmm. I've talked about this often. The whole point of the book, I, the second chapter in the book is about the matrix, about Neo. If you've seen the movie, the matrix, and mm-hmm. I talk about your reticular activating system and slowing down time and how you can program your mind. I actually get very detailed of how the RAS works in your neocortex. Having said all that, why do I pick Neo in the matrix? Because if you watch the matrix, they believe Neo is the one. And you've heard me say this before, but in every family, there's a Neo and every family, eventually the one shows up, the one who changes that family. You see a happy, rich, successful family at some point all the way back, they weren't at one point. And yeah. then the one shows up and they change the way that family thinks, acts, lives, grows, expands, contributes forever. In my family, I'm the one in your family. You're the one. And the free people that are listening to this, you got to become the one in your family that changes it forever. And that's what I write about in the book is how to become the one. And I actually discuss what that the one looks like with the example of Neo.
1: Explain to me your belief about balance. You got so many things going on. You got the family, especially when you were in, in like knee deep in the weeds of building the business and the kids were young and there's so much stuff going on. What do you believe about balance?
0: Fallacy. I, actually, I, it's one of the things I don't like that I did in this book is I reread it the other day, and it's like, I almost think you would think I think you can have balance if you read my book, and I don't like that because I don't think you can always be in balance. I think it's something to strive for, but not realistic. Remember this, extremity expands capacity. This is something most people don't understand. The Mm. more you do something to the extreme, it expands your capacity to do it again or bigger, ironically. So for me, the idea that this notion that, well, if I'm crushing it at work, I'm going to be not as good of a dad, Or if I'm really a great dad, I'm not going to be fit. The truth is that for me, when I'm crushing it at work, I come home, I'm a better dad. I'm more engaged. I'm more energized. I think this notion that we get tired because of hard work is actually not true. I actually think we're like batteries and we need to be charged all the time. Most people are tired from lack of ambition, lack of work, lack of engagement, lack of chasing something more than they are by chasing something. When I'm super fit and jacked at the gym, I'm a better business person. I'm a business athlete instead of an average everyday business person. So this notion that if I give a lot to one thing, another one gets less, that's just a flawed premise. It's a flawed belief system. There's no proof that that's true. And I can tell you that it's not true. The more fit I am, I've been better in business. The better I've done in business, the better father I've been. The better father I've been, I'm actually more focused in business. The key is be where your feet are. If I'm at work, I got to be at work. And when I leave there and I go into my home, I need to be in my home. When I'm at the gym, I don't reply to texts and emails, right? Mm-hmm. I'm in that world. I'm, I'm, I'm going to dispense some justice for an hour, yeah. right? I'm going to get after it. Then when I leave there, I'll be where my feet are planted them. So this notion of balance is, is not true. And this notion that because you do a lot of one thing, the other thing suffers is also not true. But because you believe it, it does. Mm-hmm. Stop yeah. believing that.
1: So how do you structure a typical day?
0: I wish I were better at that now just because my days are so crazy. So I don't structure the day, but I do structure the first 30 and the last 30 minutes. That's Perfect. my sense of structure. So, What does that look like? First, For me, when I wake up, I immediately say a prayer. And for, I mean, if I'm being super specific, I pray on my knees. So I actually get out of my bed and I get on my knees and I say a prayer. And that can take anywhere from 30 seconds to 15 minutes, depending on hmm. what I got going on. And then I grab... This jug of water that you're looking at, which is a gallon, and I drink a half a gallon of water. I really do. I super hydrate right when I get up, which is hard because you're not breathing good, you know, that I do that. And and then typically I will get up and stretch and do some meditation for 10 to 15 minutes, just empty my mind and get clear. And then from there, I actually go and I get a cup of coffee. I intermittent fast, but coffee is permitted in the middle of my fast. I do that. Then I go take my meds because I have some medication to take. And then I go work out. And then when I'm done working out, I grab some food and check my phone. And that's the first time I've checked my phone is probably about an hour, hour, 15 minutes into my day. Hardest discipline in the world is not to be looking at those messages and text messages. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Now it's not anymore because I do it every single day. And about three days a week, I do a cold plunge. I don't do it every day anymore, just simply because if the routine is too Complicated and not repetitive, not able to be replicated and duplicated. You won't continue doing it, right? So I just can't have eleven things I'm doing. I used to have twenty-three hour
1: routine. Yeah,
0: like <laughs> I had twenty-six checklists. And I can't do all that stuff. So right. I do a cold plunge about three days a week, and I don't even know when those three days are going to be. But by the end of the week, I've usually done three days of a cold plunge, and it's not even the discipline of it for me. It's actually that it just turns on my nervous system and wakes me up completely. And those are days I'm usually a little bit more tired. Last thirty yeah. minutes of my day is mainly review of the day, clear outcomes for the next day. I do something hot i actually sit in an infrared photo modulation bed before i go to sleep at night that i bought those are very expensive you don't need to do that but i actually if you're asking me what i do i do that i stretch again i pull out my clothes for the next day so that they're done i say another prayer and i'm i'm off to the off to sleepy land
1: (laughs) i love that man i appreciate you being candid and telling us exactly what what it looks like there because it, it, it's so funny because I I remember Naveen Jain one time he was speaking somewhere. Yeah, I love Naveen. and yeah. And he goes, he said something about morning routines and how a lot of times uh, for most people it's BS. He was like, you can take a cold plunge every day and you're not going to be Tony Robbins. It's more about right. what you believe rather than what you do. And yeah. I thought that was a really unique insight. And I appreciate appreciate you being willing to be like, hey. Don't you, like you can't just keep putting more and more and more with more, more and more things into no, the, this the because people almost like do anything.
0: Yeah. The reason I only do, do anything is this: it's the illusion of control that mm. I start my day dictating the terms of my day, not having them dictated to me. And I yeah. think if I can get some control over the first thirty minutes and the last thirty, there's a chance I'll have some control in the middle of it. There's two okay. types of people: there's people who dictate the terms, and those people who react and respond. Yeah, I want to be. This sounds weird because it'll it comes across as the wrong connotation, but I want to be a dictator. Not a reactor, not a dictator in the terms of a the country dictator, (laughs) but a dictator of I dictate the terms. That doesn't happen every day. In fact, it didn't happen today. Today's a pretty good example. I did my morning routine. My first meeting, the person who I was meeting with had the time change wrong. And so my day was set the wrong direction the very second I got out of my routine, but I'm kind of back on track now.
1: This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed Travis. Just go to Indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. So I I want to ask you this question because I think I'm a big believer in self awareness and leaning into things that you're really good at and then pressing harder on those things rather than like trying to perfect something that maybe you don't have any sort of natural ability to do. So one of your superpowers that I've observed over the years is you have this just innate, ability, and that's why I said you're a prodigious people builder at the beginning of this, because you have this innate ability to make people feel like important or significant, or at least make them feel feel good about themselves. Is that something that you consciously worked on? Was that something that was always something that was inside of you that maybe you that you did a little bit better? How did that kind of come into fruition in, in your day-to-day life?
0: You, like I told you the first time, you're really good at this. Because you've hit on maybe one of the three or four things I'm only good at, and that's it. Everything in your life happens for you and not to you. I started saying that. I think I was first, and then everyone says it now because I said it about 15 years ago, but I'll prove it to you. Napoleon Hill says in the book that anything, when you go through any temporary pain in your life, and all pain is temporary, that if you can go through pain, on the other side of that, if you can get through it, is you get introduced to your other self. You get introduced to a talent or a gift or another version of you that you didn't otherwise know you had. For me, that usually in my childhood meant my dad's drinking, who ended up, by the way, becoming sober. He's the reason that one, the power of one more exists because he stayed sober one more day at a time and got tried to get sober one more time and helped one more person. So, but when I was a little boy, Travis, my dad, I had, I had three little sisters. When my dad would come home, I had to be able to read my dad. I had to be able to read him, be present with him. I'm talking like five years old. Which dad was coming through the front door? If it was drunk dad, I need to get my sisters and probably have them go upstairs and have mom go take a shower. And I'd have to read this man when he would come through. I'd look up at my daddy. Was his tie on the right way? Was his hair disheveled? How did he walk? What was his pace like? What could I smell on him? And I would read my dad. That would be drunk dad. Or is it sober dad? He comes through. He looks great. He doesn't have any. It's not staggering or struggling or anything like that. There are little subtle things in his eyes. I could see we'd go in the backyard and play baseball. Be a great day. But I started to learn this skill of reading people and being present with them. That was the first thing. My dad's drinking gave me that gift. The second thing was, if it was the wrong dad, I had to make him feel good. Hey, daddy, how was work today? Thank you so much. I'm so proud of you. And I would learn to make my dad feel good so that if it was the drunk dad, I would still get a decent version of him for my sisters and my mom. And so this adversity is what gave me my two biggest skills, my ability to read people and communicate with people came from the worst thing in my life ever which was my dad's drinking when I was a young man. And so for those of you listening to this on the other side of this temporary horrible thing you may go through or have been through is this other self and eventually that gift or talent of that other self will be the thing you use to win win happiness, win money, win influence, win contribution, win emotions will be this other thing. So that was maybe the one of the most important questions anyone's ever asked
1: me. Yeah. So I, I mean, I I appreciate again, the candid response. Yeah. How do you process that? So like somebody listening right now, Mm -hmm. they're in the middle of the trauma. Mm -hmm. They're, they're in, they're in the thick of it.
0: And it's difficult. Whatever.
1: Yeah. It's difficult to see, well, in the future, this is going to benefit me. And a lot of times you don't even want to admit it because it feels so bad and it feels like this shouldn't be happening to me. Life isn't fair. I didn't ask for this. Like, I I don't even want to see good in it because I want to be upset about it. And I want to feel justified in my bitterness toward this event. How do you, how do you get out of that? How do you start changing the way that you're perceiving that?
0: The way such great questions, bro. So I, again, I have a chapter in the book called one more meaning and one more emotion. They're two different chapters. And here's the situation. It's not our life that it's not the events of our life that dictate where we're going to go or how happy we are. It's the meaning we attach to the event. It's the meaning. So you and I could be at a car accident, brother, and watch a child die in front of us. Our meaning, we're going to attach, if we went up on that accident scene, would be this is tragic and one of the worst moments of our life and obviously for the people that are there. Mother Teresa's at the same event, bro. Same exact event. The meaning she would take, believe it or not, would be this is the honor of my life that God let me be with this person as they went to heaven. Same event, completely different meaning, different emotion. So what you have to ask yourself when you're going through it is what does this mean to me? What would I need it? What would I need to believe about this event that serves me? Start with a different question, different question, different answer, different emotion. Mm. So and so it's not just you could actually say to yourself, this sucks. Okay, fine. What would I need to believe about this so that would actually serve me? My dad dying of cancer. That's a hard one to come up with a good thing for. And I would ask myself, what would I need to believe about this so that it's a good thing? or "There, There was good in it. And I did. I found that because of my dad's illness, I valued my dad more. I valued humans more. I valued my own health more. Before, my dad would call Travis. If I was in a meeting, I'd put him to voicemail. What started to happen after that? I'd say, hang on a minute. It's my dad. Yeah. And that let them and me know this man right here is more important than whatever we're talking about right now. So those events changed me. And I needed to believe that so that I could get a positive result from it. I didn't really believe it in the beginning. I had to say, what would I need to believe? And then once I adopted that question, my RAS and my brain start to go find the people, places, things, and references to prove me right. All of a sudden, I'm like, this is God at work here. My dad was going to die anyway, not at 73 years old. It should have been 93. But my dad, that event was eventually going to happen. At some point, we all die. But the question was, what would I need to believe about this? What I needed to believe was that this was conspiring for me. Because I was going down a path where I didn't appreciate my family enough. I didn't appreciate small things enough. I was constantly doing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger things, missing all of the small, beautiful things, thinking I would get to them once I had all the big things done. We think about that with our faith, don't we? Yeah, I got my faith. I got it. It's there. And I'm really going to get into it once I don't need to worry about money anymore. I'm really going to dive back in once the kids are a little bit older. And you start just you it, these big things that we think are small things we keep putting away. And so what my dad's cancer did is it moved the important things way up on the priority list for me. And because I'm a man who influences millions of people, perhaps that was God's way of going. I am going to alter you because you're reaching way too many other people not to understand these things. And I'm going to use this thing that was going to happen with your dad in 20 years now. And that's what I needed to believe about
1: it. Talk talk a lot about meaning in, in that answer. I'm curious. What do you view as life's meaning? Why why are we here and what should we be striving for?
0: I believe life is about loving people, caring about people, believing in people. And if you can, show them how to do a little bit better. When I walked into the orphanage that I ended up starting my business career in, all those little boys, they were all molested by their parents or their parents were incarcerated or dead. These little precious eight-year-old boys. When I walked in, I wasn't a psychologist. I wasn't a dad. I wasn't qualified to be there, right? It's, it's amazing. God doesn't call qualified people. He qualifies called people. Yeah. And all these little boys wanted from me, bro. They'd look at me with these eyes. Please love me. Please care about me. Here's a big one most people don't get. Please believe in me. Very few people believe in other people, right? And show me how to live better. And what I found out, those little eight-year-old boys are no different than the most famous athlete, politician, entertainer, Travis or Ed everywhere. We want people to love us, care about hmm. us, believe in us, and in our way and what we bring to the table, show me how to live or do better. With your gift, you show me how to do better. With my gift, I show you how to do better. And no one's gift is more important than the other person's. And the more you just go, gosh, that is really why we're here. Wouldn't If you're a Christian like I am, and I know you are, but even if you're not, wouldn't you assume that's what God would want us to be doing? Serving one another, serving his kingdom, loving one another, caring truly believing in each other. Why do I be, Why do you believe in human beings so much? Because I actually know their DNA. They were born to do something great with their life in their way because the same God that made me in his image and likeness, his blood's running through them. So I'm no better or worse than them. I know who they are. They're my brother or sister. So you bet you're, I love them. I care about them. I believe in them. Even when they are doing things they shouldn't be doing, even when they're falling down, even when they're failing, even when they're sinning, Because there's this thing called grace. My dad, Travis, lived 35 years as an alcoholic, probably not a great husband, probably not a great dad, and in one decision completely changed his life and became my hero and lived a better life than any man I have ever known on earth personally the next 35 years. Mm. So I'm in the business of helping people change their lives because I watched my hero do it Yeah, with 35 years the wrong way and then went 35 years nearly perfect. So I know people
1: can change. With your dad being gone now, is there anybody that that you're looking up to? Anybody that you're kind of following and and looking to for advice or wisdom?
0: It's a tough one because my dad gets me emotional. My dad was definitely that person for me. Anything good that happened, I'd call my dad. I do have a a, a surround myself, man. I want to name all of them by name, but I I have a group of people I surround myself that, you know, in the book, I talk about this a lot. You have a thermostat setting of your life. It's your identity. So if you have a money identity set at 75 degrees, and you start making 100 degrees worth of money, you'll find a way to turn the air conditioner back down to get what you believe you deserve. So in different areas of my life that I want to grow in, I surround myself with people that live at higher temperatures than me. So in my faith life, if there's three, four, five guys, Erwin McManus has become a good friend of mine. Joel Osteen's come into my life a little bit. Steven Furtick's come into my life a little bit. Guys you would not know by name that are just wonderful guys of faith. I want to be around them, right? Because they can heat me up a little bit my financial life, you know who some of my neighbors are. So there's some really wealthy billionaire guys that are neighbors of mine. They heat me up that way. But to be honest with you, man, and I don't mean to be overly preachy about faith today because I don't, it it sounds a little bit crass when I say it because I'm not even qualified to talk about this stuff. But I really, man, when I lost my father on earth, I got a lot closer to my heavenly father. And so I was already pretty close, but I lost my father on earth. I don't have another one of those this other one in heaven's with me every single day. And so I do bring him into my podcasts. I bring him into meetings like this. I pray about it before I go on a sales call. I, I feel his presence. It gives me peace, gives me comfort. I'm hoping he'll give me the words and the wisdom and the direction. And so that's really who I rely on the most.
1: So you brought up the podcast. I would be remiss. I'm a, I'm a big, obviously, podcasting fan. I love helping people with podcasts. We did a lot of coaching and and consulting around helping entrepreneurs podcasts because I just love the medium and I think it's awesome. And it's done wonders for my network, which has also affected yeah. my net worth coincidentally, right? What do you get out of the podcast? Why, why do the podcast?
0: I feel like I get, well, for me, selfishly, I now use my podcast almost as a weapon to meet the people that I want to know uh, exactly. that I don't know.
1: Yes, yeah, I do Thank that.
0: You. And I also, I do a lot of that. And I also highlight okay. friends that I think are special. So for me, it's this vessel to express myself. This week, for example, I did one that's just me. So sometimes I'll do that. For me, it's a form of expression. It's a form of being able to reach people. I find on my podcast, man, it's one of the few things I do regularly that I always look forward to doing. It's not like, oh, I got this on my calendar. And to me, that's an indicator that it's a calling, right? Like I get to do this today. And I love sharing people sharing with people, people laugh at me all the time. They're like, man, you are really enthusiastic when you have a guest on. (laughs) I really do love people. I really am interested in them. I really do believe in them. And I wouldn't put you on my show if I didn't think you could help people do better. So it's probably like the ultimate form of doing what I think we should do as humans with my limited skill set, is my show. And I I feel so blessed, man, that people listen to it. I mean, I got to tell you, it's such... Isn't it weird? Like sometimes I'm like, I can't believe that many people just listen to this thing. Like it's amazing how many it can reach. And I just did a deal with Sirius and Stitcher, kind of like what Rogan did. But I only do one show a week. He does a show a day, which is crazy to me. But yeah, man, it's just it's. I feel so blessed to get to do my
1: show. You got zero lack of opportunity at this point. We were just talking before we even hit the record button that you're doing like a hundred podcasts or something for the book. But then also, there's probably hundreds or thousands of requests that you have to turn away. What? makes you say no or yes to an opportunity? And how do you say no?
0: Hardest it's, it's the thing I'm the worst at. It's the thing I'm the worst at is saying no. And I have to learn to get better at it. But where, why would I say yes to something? Because sometimes I'll even do things like I did with you the first time I did your show. Sometimes I just pray about it. And God says, this is one you need to do. Most of the time, I'll, I'll do it if either, A, I believe I can make a contribution and make a difference. Or B, I think the person I'm supporting doing it with should be elevated This sounds odd, but like by my brand and presence with them, if I can lift them up. So that's the ones I say yes to, but almost always it's based on contribution. 20 years ago, if you wanted to get me to do something, you better be able to throw at me attention and wreck money. (laughs) Now I have plenty of those things. So those are not drivers for me like they used to be. Everyone wants attention. Everyone wants more money. Everyone's right. But it's not my primary driver. My primary driver now is growth and contribution. If I think I can help people grow or myself grow, or I can contribute by being there, then that's where God wants me sitting that day. I really believe that, and it's where I feel home. It's where I feel like this is it was a vibrational frequency, an energy where I'm like, yep, this is right. And that's sort of how I usually make the decision. But in all candor, you can't learn everything from one person. And one thing you would not learn to do well from me is how to say no because I hate hurting people's feelings, and I have an absolutely terrible time saying no to people, and it surprises people because I'm super intense, dude, and I can be very candid, but in terms of just saying no, man, am I terrible at that.
1: Well, Ed, here. I appreciate I appreciate you saying yes to this one and uh, you know that I could sit here and ask questions about you from, from you all day, so I will be respectful of your time, get you back to uh, get you back to your schedule and your family. The Power of One More, the ultimate guide to happiness and success. Guys, please, please, please for yourself, not for me, not for Ed for yourself go pick up a copy of the book that's holding his hand right now the power of one more and do it now because this this event that they're doing is is a one day event it's may 27th is that may right 27th Ed?
0: you can go to yep you can go to maxoutlive.com perfect buy the book over there too on amazon or target or barnes and noble and you're in the event man we
1: want to help max totally out free. live Dot .com please do yourself a favor go pick up a copy of this book check it out everything starts in the mind guys and um, I, again like I said at the beginning of this interview I don't know many more people that would that are more qualified to speak into to speak into this particular topic so ed as always thanks so much for taking the time I really enjoyed really enjoyed having the conversation with you you're the best Travis thanks for having me brother That's it for today's episode. Thanks for spending some time with me and my friends. If you want to be better friends with me, then head over to travischappell.com slash team to subscribe to my free newsletter, Your Friend Travis, where I share what's on my mind about life, building a business, raising kids, being married, and anything else I would normally share with my close circle of friends. That's travischappell.com slash team.